This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I'm Wes Moss. The prevailing thought in America is that you'll never have enough money and it's almost impossible to retire early. Actually, I think the opposite is true. For more than 20 years, I've been researching, studying, and advising American families, including those who started late, on how to retire sooner and happier. So my mission with the Retire Sooner podcast is to help a million people retire earlier while enjoying the adventure along the way. I'd love for you to be one of them. Let's get started. We're here in the studio, Mallory, giving me one eyebrow raised because we're supposed to be talking about travel today because I wanted to talk about the economics of the U.S. economy getting back to travel. So really, we're going to talk about the very, very best possible thing about travel. Then, of course, the very worst the worst possible thing about travel. And she doesn't want me to talk about it, but I'm a human and I get scared every time there's a plane crash, just like we all do. And you see the images and you see the wreckage and you think, wait a minute, I'm supposed to get on a flight. And then you start thinking, oh, wait a minute, it's supposed to be safe until it's not safe. And, and then I always go back to the numbers of, I want to I just go analytically very quickly to see how safe it is. And I did that this past week. So I want to at least just bring that just as a normal human that gets scared, just like everybody else. When you see something catastrophic or terrible, I, I sometimes numbers help me get through that fear and that worry and just keep going on with the real world and keep going on with life. So we're talking about the very worst just for a minute about travel and some of the other scary things that we can, that can really be dangerous or uh, that we'll get to statistically interesting. And then the very best thing about travel and this goes back to happy retiree research. So that's what we'll do here on Retire Sooner. Now, we'll also talk about, and this is regardless of whether we're in a correction or a bear market or just coming back out of a correction, and we've had a very volatile 2022 with all sorts of things to worry about. Of course, Ukraine and Russia, of course, Ukraine and Russia and everything that we're seeing there, obviously something that is very, very difficult for those people and Eastern Europe. I got some flack from one of the callers that said, why are you not calling this a, why are you calling this a conflict? It's a geopolitical conflict. Stop sugarcoating it. Okay. It's, it's a war. I get it. Uh, but no matter what's happening, and again, of course, what else is plaguing the markets this year, keeping the markets nervous? The Fed, the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell this week came out and said, look, I get it. Inflation's way too high and we might have to raise interest rates even more than we've been doing. So they've been doing this just a quarter point, quarter point, quarter point, very measured. And even Jerome Powell came out and admitted this uh, almost cartoon clown show that the Fed has been over the last couple of years and saying, oh, dude, there's not going to be really any real inflation. Now they're saying we get it. Of course there is. And we might have to raise it like a half a percent at each meeting. And that, again, that's going to keep the market nervous. Uh, but regardless of what's happening, whether it's wars in and around the world, whether it's the worry about any sort of Federal Reserve slowing down or throwing cold water on the U.S. economy, and these are, these are always things that we have to face as investors. 
But one thing that keeps me sane, speaking of going back to the numbers, is, is tracking and understanding the relentless, the relentless uh, march forward and higher of dividends. And we'll talk about that today as well. The relentless march higher of dividends that to me is, again, this, this almost empirical uh, way of looking at the numbers and just saying, okay, well, wait, we've went through that and dividends still went up. And we went through that and dividends still went up. Well, we can get through anything. And history helps be our guide there. The numbers from history helps to guide us so that we can be stronger and better investors in the future. And then, speaking of a low interest rate world, where the Federal Reserve knows that the part of the reason rates are so, or inflation is so high and th so through the roof, is that money's been easy. What does easy money mean? It means super cheap, meaning that almost zero interest rates have led to, hey, take out a loan. There's barely any interest. Loan, 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 borrow, borrow, borrow. What does that do? It stimulates the economy. But guess what it also does? It creates inflation. And Jerome Powell and his buddies over at the Fed know that there's got to be some reckoning. It means higher rates will kind of be the tapping of the brake pedal. Uh, so because we've had interest rates still so low and yes, now headed higher, particularly in the last uh, several weeks, the last call it for most of 2022, it's also meant that it's hard to find income. And when you go out and you start looking at even dividend paying stocks, and we still have 40 plus percent of stocks in the S&P 500 are yielding more than the 10-year treasury. So we're still looking for, and last week we talked about rethinking the, the, the old-fashioned 60-40 portfolio, the static portfolio that has a whole bunch of bonds that yield very little. Well, we know that particularly in inflationary environments, we're gonna, we're, we are smart to look for yield or income from stocks. And even when you start looking at stocks today, it's hard to find great yields. You're going to find one and a half, two percent, two and a half percent. Sure, you can find three or four percent, but it's harder to do so. And what really helps me, again, stay an income investor is not necessarily trying to nail down the yield of today, but buying a dividend paying stock that can potentially yield me more in the future as those dividends rise. So a lot to dig into today here. And we're going to get started with travel. By the way, speaking of the call in line, and I just talked to Andrea this morning, I said, you need to redo the call in line because the call in line is, it's a great it's a great script. It's very friendly. Oh, leave a message for Money Matters. Leave a message for Retire Sooner. But it sounded a little scripted. So we're, we're going to redo it and, and make it even more inviting because not, not everybody can call in on a Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon and say, hey, this is Bill from Conyers or Debbie from Denver because you might be headed to church or this time of year, maybe some late spring skiing. So we did a 1-800 number that you can call 24-7 when the, when the question pops up in your mind. So if you're in your car, you just write it down. And as soon as you have a question later in the week, you and your husband are speaking about, hey, what should we do? Oh, wait a minute. Let's call in and talk to Wes Moss and maybe he'll answer it on the show. So give us a call here in the 24-7 a question hotline, one 800 805 6301. 1-800-805-6301. Mallory said, give an example. An example would just be any financial question you have. No, give me an example. Okay. Any question, anything, maybe you're facing a, your employer saying, hey, here's a lump sum, a potential, and or you could take it over time as a pension. Which one's a better deal? 
How do you figure that out? There's a lot that goes into that. And it's a major, major financial decision. You, you got to get it right. What about when you're going to do a Roth conversion? We all want lower taxes, but do we want to do that in the context of what is it going to cost us to get there? So how do I do a Roth conversion for your particular situation? What about going from a 401k into an IRA? Does that make sense for you? Uh, what Maybe it's just a spending question in the future. We're going to be spending X amount. Do I have permission to spend here? Well, maybe maybe it makes sense if you kind of lay out that situation. We love answering these questions. You don't have to leave your real name, but you can. Uh, your voice is what was is what matters, and we love. So again, the number on the twenty four seven call in line. 1-800 for your financial questions, 800-805-6301. Now, here we are on a Sunday, and I'm thinking about this past week, and I've been scheduling trips, and I've got, I, I've, I, as we all probably have, some COVID, COVID makeup trips. When I say COVID, COVID, because we all delayed trips for a year, and then that year came around, and then you still couldn't go to the trip, you got to delay it again. So you've got these COVID, COVID, COVID makeup trips. And... I've been hearing more of these. Oh, I was just in, a friend of mine was just in Las Vegas. It was a, a, from a au silent auction, charity auction, like two and a half years ago. Uh, I, I've got a, a, a golf trip that I was supposed to go to uh, that has been now canceled and rescheduled for the third time coming up uh, this summer. So the I think about the travel headlines. I started thinking about the economic activity here in the United States. Here are a couple of headlines from the week. Miami Beach declares state of emergency due to spring break crowds. Now, I don't remember. I remember going, where did I? I remember going spring break. I'm thinking maybe Panama City 30 years ago in college. I don't remember being that crowded. Like there were some people. But the Miami, the city of Miami had to declare a state of emergency. There's so much pent up demand. Imagine they're so, they had to do a curfew. And this is almost like planning for catastrophic success. This is a problem. You might be super smart as a college kid. Oh, we're going to Miami. It's the hottest place in town. You're right. But it's so hot, they won't let you go out. It's 8 p.m. curfew. That's the last thing you want on spring break. Good decision, but not so fast. United Airlines, Delta, American Airlines. Here's another headline. Uh, stocks rise as carriers see post-COVID travel boost. Of course. You've been to the airport lately? It's an absolute zoo. We're going to go over some of the TSA, the uh, TSA screening numbers, which are fascinating. Uh, this, this I didn't agree with. European travel grow post-COVID despite Ukraine war. I don't see how that's possible. Uh, but let's go into some of those numbers. Uh, let's go TSA travel checkpoints. If you go and we look just last Sunday, so go back to March 20th, just last Sunday, 2,366,751 people went through TSA. So about 2.3, 2.4 million folks in a day in the United States went through TSA. Two years ago, TSA had 184,000 people go through TSA. So today, if you do, if you do those numbers, we are 12X, so 184,000 two years ago. Today, we're back to 2.4 million per day in the United States. So we are 12X, 12 times higher today when it comes to passengers, busyness in the airport, Hartsfield, Jackson, and around the United States than we were exactly two years ago today, 12X. If we go back to the April, and then I started to get interested in this. I said, wait a minute, how low, how bad did it get? How ghost towny did it get? 
in, in airports across the United States. Well, the low of travel was in April of 2021. The low of travel in April 2021, there was a long stretch of time where TSA screenings were under 100,000. Under 100,000 people total in the United States traveling by air due to the pandemic. Under 100,000 a day for a lot of that month. Today, we're more than 20 times. We're 20 times where we were. Talk about being back to normal. So if you look at the full numbers, as of this past week, we're 93 to 94% of the way back to normal. So travel down 5 6% from, where, uh, from pre, pre-COVID levels. Uh, and we've got some, again, we've just announced yet another mask extension, despite all of this travel and despite the world being totally reopened. But let's still look at some of the economics behind travel just for a second. We're back to 93% of where we were pre-COVID, meaning that TSA is full. The lines are long again, just like it was before the pandemic. We, we got down to almost a trickle through TSA. Now we're 20X where we were, 20 times that of April of 2020. Back to the real world. A couple weeks ago, CDC said that we're still going to have mass mandates, though, up t- on planes, trains, and buses, and airports, et cetera. That's supposed to be extended through April 18th, 2022. So still mass mandate, still mass mandate. That's the fourth extension. I'm trying to get out of this wearing a mask all over the place. Most of America is pretty, most of America is pretty tired of this. And I'm looking around the studio here. We've got some conservatives. We've got some liberals. And both sides are like, "Ah, I can't stand the mask anymore. What's interesting, though, and this is CDC information, cdc.gov and First Trust Advisors. If you look at a, a covid the, the spread of Omicron between two very different states, one heavy mass mandates, one no mass mandates. The rate, the seven-day case rate per 100,000, essentially the amount of people per population that had ended up with Omicron track almost identically between Florida and California, almost identical. But again, we're not here to talk about masks or not. I'm just excited for masks to go away in, on airplanes. Let's switch to a different kind of travel. We're talking about the good old family truckster vehicle miles travel. You just hop into the car, headed down to 30A, measured by the Bureau of Transportation Statistics, so we can track this. As of the end of last year, vehicle miles traveled have now exceeded 2019. So we as a country are traveling even more than we did before the pandemic started. And of course, we're driving the same, the, those same used cars that are now up by 40% in price because of and due to inflation. Here's a, just a shocking number. How many miles do we drive on average per month in the United States? About 278 billion miles, to be exact. That's a monthly number, 278 billion miles. You could fly around the world about 11 million times just to put that in context, or you could do a round trip to the moon, 581,000 times, something that uh, rich billionaires seem to like to do, travel back and forth to outer space. I'd rather be right here in the good old United States of America.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There's also some introspection when it comes to travel, I think is important because it's a, it's a hugely important part of being a happy retiree. And it's healthy for everyone to travel and it's healthy to take vacation and it's healthy to get out and do something different. And I said, we talk about the best and the worst part about travel. We'll get to the best, but just for a second, we just went through again, of course, this uh, flight in China went down. You, you see the, the wreckage on every news headline or every, every website you go to. And it's just scary. And I'm thinking, oh, wait, I'm about to hop on a flight. And as humans, I'm sure we all do that. Wait, uh, wait a minute. It fell out of the sky? What? And you just think about how you hear, oh, it's the safest way to travel until a plane falls out of the sky. So you think everyone has this double, check, double take on travel when you see these catastrophic events. And sometimes it's helpful just to go back. And I, I think I've found myself doing this over when it comes to wars or pandemics, just going back and looking at the numbers. And sometimes that just helps me get through really difficult events like what you see on our, in our news aggregators and we've seen all week. And I wanted to see how scary it's flying is scary. So let's look at the numbers on flying just, just for a minute. Objectively here, there are about 42 million not 42 million. There's 42,000 flights in the United States. I'm talking U.S. commercial flights. I'm not talking about the rich folks flying around on private jets. I'm not talking about people in the, in the single props out there trying to get their pilot license at PDK. I'm talking about commercial flights. 42,000 of them per day in the United States. That's 16 million, 16 million flights a year. If you, I'm going to go back essentially post 9-11, because we all know what happened during 9-11. But since 9-11, you can go back and look at the statistics. There, there are a few. There are a few plane crashes, which again, that's the worst part of travel. Of course, the 2006, and these are any flights that are 50 plus, so commercial plus. There was a 2006 flight of an airline I, I have not heard of, the 2009 flight uh, that went down about 50, both of these are about 50 people. And then of course, one of the, one of the big, really the biggest travesty post 9-11 was a few months later, it was November of 2001, it was an American Airlines flight. I remember that very vividly uh, going down in, in New York, 260 people, 265 people died. There was also a a plane. There was a crash landing in 2013 in San Francisco. It was an Asiana, uh, it looked Asiana airline, but 300 plus of those people survived. So most, of, almost that entire plane was okay. So I go back over the course of the last 20 years, and we have had three, you know, three really catastrophic crashes in the United States. And if you look, if you do the math. On in during that period of time, we've had about 320 million flights. So we've had one really major crash, but let's really look at all of them. Three out of 320 million. Well, what's the math? It's still about a one in a hundred million that something awful is going to happen. One in a hundred million. So I'm still going to fly. 
and I'm still going to take those chances. But I don't know. It was just helpful for me to go through those numbers as I have a, a moment of panic when I think, oh, wait, I'm about to fly. We're about to fly as a family. Now, you know what comes next? Every time we ever talk about something like this, we've got to go to relative dangers here. So if you go back and you look at the statistics about if you're going to go canoeing, what is the chances? of Remember, we, we've determined here about one in 100 million that a plane will go down. Well, canoeing, you have is the, the, the chances of dying for canoeing are one in 10,000. And, and when I read that, I thought, there's no way, because you think of this as little, this nice red canoe, and you're kind of floating down a river. It's not like that all the time. And I actually almost, I, this almost happened to me. My, my I think I've probably told the story on, on Money Matters before, but my father and I went canoeing, slash it was like one of those blue and yellow giant inner tube canoes after a hurricane and our creek turned into like a class four rapid and we ended up hitting a tree that the thing exploded and we went downstream like 500 yards and i was a i was kind of like a little kid so i grew up on a dangerous farm this is just one of the speaking of danger on a farm you you're about 20 look sounds like 20 people a year die from getting kicked by a horse Again, if you've been around horses, these are powerful animals. One of those hooves on a, a bucking of a bronco goes to the head, lights out. I totally get that one. In fact, I'm surprised it's that low. I mean, that's well, I, that sounds low to me. But what I was surprised about is that it's the same number for cows. So 20 people a year die from getting kicked by a cow. It's really quite incredible. And you think cows are so, so docile. I think it's probably because there's more cows. I would, I would be willing to bet there's a lot more cows than there are horses. 24 deaths per year for champagne corks. Yes, you heard that right. The chance of dying of a vending machine falling at one in 112 million. Bungee cord jumping one in 500,000. I think you're asking for that one. And then again, canoeing one in 10,000. What else here? Shark one in a million bicycle riding a bicycle right around the city of Atlanta 101 in 140,000 so with that I'm talking about travel mostly because it the 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 beautiful part about travel and how travel relates back to a happy retirement it of course it's it's healthy in my opinion for everybody to travel we know that atrobs happiest retiree on block versus you, Robs, the unhappiest retiree group. We know that statistically, they have a statistically different number of vacations on average per year. You, Robs, the unhappy group, they take 1.4 vacations per year. The happy group takes 2.4. It's an entire extra vacation per year. More travel is better if you want to be a happy retiree. But let's take this one step further. And I wrote about this latest research in my book, What What the Happiest Retirees Know, which is the book that I just published. There was a, a one of the studies I did was, uh, was trying to figure out the relationship between happiness and travel. And this is what's so fascinating. Yes, more travel or more vacations are better. But here's an ATROB, I would call this an, an ATROB multiplier. And this one's pretty simple. Traveling with friends, aka also known as group excursions. And I wrote, the, I wrote about this in What the Happiest Retirees Know, but there's something about a group excursion, and I don't care if it's one friend, two friends, five friends, it's, it's, like, it's an irreplaceable 
happiness multiplier in retirement. And think about think about your really good friends. Think about, if you're if you're like me, the the story of your friendships probably include a trip or two. And some of them were terrible and awful trips, but even those are are are, the, are fond memories. And then you've got the adventurous trips. I can't believe that happened on that trip, and that's another amazing memory. And you think about, oh, I was on the trip with you and you, and that that is something that maybe that part of it is the irreplaceable part of it. So here's what the research says. That that one powerful or magical trip that has an impact, retirees who take at least one group trip per year are two and a half more times likely to be in the happy group. Take three trips per year and you're 4X or four times more likely to end up in the happy group. Four trips, you're 6X. So it's, it's really this. There doesn't look like there's a plateau when it comes to traveling with friends and the propensity to end up in the happy retiree camp. Now, we start to think about how expensive it has gotten to travel. We know the airline, the cost of flying has gone up at least 15% year over year. Of course, that's in large part because we have more demand. So the, the scaled down flights because of COVID are now full, full, full. You've got more demand. You've got to push prices up. Of course, the cost of anything oil-related translates into jet fuel. So it's more expensive for a barrel of oil. It means it's more expensive for airlines to fill up their tank. And then, of course, they go back to vehicle travel, vehicle miles traveled. So just you, you getting in the car with your family in your Yukon Denali or your, your Suburban going down to the coast of either Hilton Head or you're headed to Sea Pines or you're going down to 30A, the, the cost of that is obviously through the roof. Even if you find the best racetrack on the side of the highway, it's still extraordinarily expensive now to travel. Up 50%, gas prices up 50% where they were a year ago. So anything that involves doing so, if you think about the cost of houses, the cost of trying to find a rental home because rental prices have started to really climb because housing prices have gone up and through the roof and rental demand for homes outside of the city have gone up commensurately with us trying to get out of the urban centers for COVID. So we think about well, I'd love to take this 2.4 vacations per year west versus the 1.4, but it's so expensive. There's certain things that we spend our money on that really have an impact. Traveling, as an example, is one of them. Whether it's you traveling with your family or you traveling with your friends, the, the impact of that is worth so much more than the cost of your plane ticket, than the cost of your stay. The impact on Retirement, retirement happiness. And, I, and this translates whether you're retired or not, in my, in my opinion. But again, my research is really 60 plus, but I, I know this works for 30, 40, 50 plus. But the research shows that if you're trying to decide on what moves the meter from a quality of life perspective, from a propensity to land in the happy camp perspective, traveling with friends, probably we get our best possible bang for our buck in this category. So give yourself permission. It's okay. It's worth it. Go plan a trip. Go plan a group trip today, this weekend. Let's do it. I promise you it's worth it. Now we got to figure out how to pay for it because it's expensive and we know that costs have gone through the roof. And the answer, of course, in order to do that, particularly in your retirement, is what? Well, the answer can be, at least for some of us 
who are focused in on dividends and rising dividends. So let's go into the thing that may help pay for all the fun things that we've been talking about over the course of the show. And this is, I wish you could see this. This is one of my favorite charts that I'm looking at. It's a chart that shows, it goes back to two, 1998. It's right around the time I was starting as an investment advisor. I think I'd done an internship in 1997, all the way until the end of last year. And it shows the annual aggregate dividends paid out by just the SP500. It's a, it, it is a beautiful chart. It shows that the amount of cash that gets returned to or paid out to shareholders, and this is just in the S&P 500 in aggregate, it shows an increase every single year since 1998 until through, through today or through the end of 2021, except for just one blip when dividends went down from 2008 into 2009 during the great financial crisis. And then it kept going back higher. So for, more, for so 25 years, we've seen more and more and more and more dividends every single year, except for one blip, just one, one blemish on that chart. Even in the year 2020, where we talked about TSA went to a trickle, almost all travel, almost all air travel stopped in the United States. And the global economy grinded almost completely to a halt for almost a full quarter of the year. And we still saw a dividend increase in 2020 over 2019. 483 billion in 2019 and 485 billion in 2020. That's a slight increase, but an increase nonetheless. Now the results are in for the year 2021. And we just got these as we finally seen all of this tallied and aggregated. Drum roll, please. Aggregate dividends paid out SP 500, $511 billion last year. Over a half a trillion dollars of cash returned to shareholders. That's the highest amount of record and another five plus percent increase from the year prior. It's a big job. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Who are the companies that pay out the most in aggregate cash? We did this a couple of weeks ago, but we did yield. This is just aggregate payout. So who are the companies that had the biggest cash purse that paid out the most of that cash purse out of the S&P 500? So top 10 dividend payers from 2021. And it seems as though most of these will stay and maybe raise dividends. You, some of them have cut the overall percentage yield of what their dividends may be. But this is for, so this is for last year, who paid out the least to the most, but this is all, they're, they're all tremendous. And this is the top 10 out of the SP 500. So AbbVie, nine billion, a little over 9 billion. Citigroup, a little over 9 billion. Chevron, $10.2 billion in dividends paid at cash, paid out to investors. Verizon, almost 10 and a half billion. Johnson and Johnson paid out almost 11 billion. JP Morgan Chase, 12 and a half billion. Then we move into a technology name. When I first started in the investment business 25 years ago, it was a, 
it would be crazy to even think a technology company would ever pay dividends. Well, now there's some of the largest, most powerful dividend payers on the planet. So number four on the list, Apple paid out $14.5 billion in dividends last year, 2021. Then we go to kind of the opposite of Apple, ExxonMobil paid out almost $15 billion to shareholders. Then we go telecom number two, AT&T, big perennial dividend payer at a little over $15 billion. And then number one on the list as far as aggregate dividend payout, this kind of makes sense because it's, it's a ubiquitous company all over. Every, we can't run the world without it or your office without it. And of course, that's Microsoft it's, or, or video games without it. You may not think of Microsoft as a, as a gaming platform if you're a Money Matters listener. But if I asked my children what Microsoft does, they don't say Microsoft Word. They don't say Microsoft Excel. They don't say PowerPoint or Windows. They say, oh, PlayStation, PS4. Wait a minute. That's Sony. Microsoft Xbox, because unfortunately, and this is embarrassing to say as a father, we've got both in our house, both Sony and Microsoft. But that story is for another day. Again, remember when we talk about these stocks, I'm not saying go run out and grab these and they, they may not necessarily continue to do so. But this is just looking last year, who are the big payers of dividends? And out of that top 10, the list that I just went through, Microsoft, AT&T, Exxon, Apple, et cetera, that group alone, just the 10 of them, paid $124 billion. $124 billion out in dividends. That's just 10 names last year. That represents about a quarter of the total uh, dividends payout for the entire S&P 500, just from 10 companies. So that also begs to reason or stands to reason that if you're a dividend-paying company, you're a dividend-paying company. And even though about 70% of companies in the S&P 500 pay out a dividend. I don't categorize, I categorize very few of them as actual dividend paying companies. It might pay a dividend, but if it's not substantial, then they don't necessarily make it into the real dividend payer list. But this group, this is 2% of the total. So 2% of the whole S&P 500 pays out about 25% of all the dividends for the entire S&P 500, which again is fascinating to me. Now, what I want to do is is moved from this, which is just aggregate dividend payers. That's great, great, fascinating information. Thanks, Wes. Okay, I get it. How can this how can this help me? Well, where I think this really starts to help is starting to think about the amount of time you're being able that you're investing for, and how we're investing as far as trying to grow our income stream from companies versus bonds. And that has to do with this concept called yield at cost, which we haven't gone over for a long time. I have a bunch of updated examples of companies that we put money into, let's say, 10 years ago or eight years ago. The yield was okay back then. But now we look at that original investment and we're getting paid in annual dividends. And all of a sudden, it starts to look really powerful. And that's this concept, yield at cost. Before, before we do that, Anytime you think of a financial question and you jot this number down in your car or on your phone, you can just call us and leave us a message at 800-805-6301. Hi, Wes. Uh, my name is Indira from New York. I wanted to get your opinion about CD barbell strategy. I've been reading up on this and watching some videos and um, I'm working with a Fidelity rep to try to set these up. I have about 100,000 that I want to keep in some safe 
um, brokerage accounts, CDs, etc., because I need to live off of this money for the next few years in retirement. And the plan for CD barbell strategy is to invest maybe um, a portion of this money in CDs, maybe one year, two year, three years, and then the longer term, five years, six years, seven years. So the average yield will um, balance out. So I want to get your opinion of that. And thank you very much. Indira from New York, I would say, I don't know if that's her real name, but it's certainly an endearing question from someone who clearly was from New York, if I could tell the accent correctly. And yes, the let's talk about a CD ladder or any sort of concept where we're worried about interest rates going higher. And this doesn't, this works for not just interest rates going higher. You can do this too for interest rates going lower. What laddering of any sort of fixed income type instrument, when I say fixed income, I mean bonds, think treasuries, think corporate bonds or CDs. What we're trying to do is not by laddering, meaning that I want a, a one year and a two year CD and a three year and a five year and a seven year and a 10 year, et cetera. We are, we are trying to make it so that we're not locking in whatever just today's yield is. And particularly as interest rates are going up, rather than taking the whole, and in Deere's case, $100,000, the whole kit and caboodle and putting it into a CD that today may pay 2%, 1% or 2%, and saying, well, let's put cash to work at different time intervals. And that way, after let's say maybe three months or six months, the shortest one will mature, whether it's a bond or a CD. And if rates are higher in six months, then that money can go into a slightly higher yielding instrument. Meaning that let's say we have just for ease sake, we've got five, a one, a two, a three, a four, and a five year CD. The one year CD matures, rates are a bunch higher a year, a year later. And now my two-year CD has now become a one. So I go back and I buy a new five-year. And then the next year, the what was a three-year CD now matures. And I go in again and I buy another five-year. So that way I am always capturing the new interest rate in the new environment whenever money comes due. And it's a way to kind of not lock yourself into just today's rates and knowing that as you get maturities, whether they're CDs or bonds, you can then reinvest at higher yields, particularly in an interest rate environment, like we're seeing where we think rates are going to continue to go up for a while here. So Indira, thinking this through doing multiple CDs at multiple intervals, I think is a, is a very smart idea. The reason I think this is such a great question or concept is that just last week we were talking about the rethinking the good old fashioned 60, 40 static portfolio. Well, part of the reason we want to rethink the bond piece of that, the 40%, this very popular investment strategy, is it's typically predicated on just the Barclays aggregate bond index. Very often, and this is not in all kind of cookie cutter balanced portfolios, but very often the bond part, the, the bond part of the equation is just focused in on the aggregate bond index that has a long duration. Meaning that it would, it's a lot like committing to an eight or nine year bond or an eight or nine year CD. What I'd rather see investors do, those who are still going to own bonds for safety and security, the dry powder principle, still think there's a, there's a, there's a lot of reasons we want to own fixed income for safety and stability and cash flow. 
But I don't necessarily want to be locking in longer term positions today when we think rates are going higher. And from what Jerome Powell said this week, even he's finally waking up to the fact that inflation is here to stay. So an inflationary environment that isn't going away anytime soon, we know that the Federal Reserve has to continue to ratchet rates higher. And if they do that over the course of the next several years, why do we want to be locked in at longer term bond rates today when in a year or two or three, shorter term rates will even be higher potentially? So I love this call from Indira. She's bringing up a concept that I wanted to bring up here on the show for a while, and she kind of forced the issue, which is great. This is why we love calls. But think of when we're in this rising interest rate environment, the bonds that we do have, the conservative investments that we still want to hold, think of them not locking in medium and long term, but think about how you ladder that. Potentially laddering is one way to do it. You can also do this through laddered ETFs. So another... Another concept that I'm a big believer in is even buying laddered ETFs. And you can find ETFs that own bonds that have a specific maturity date. So you can do the same thing with corporate bonds by, being, by owning an ETF that matures in 2022, and then one that matures in 2023, and then 24, et cetera. And the reason we do that is exactly, exactly the same reason Indira is asking about laddering bonds. One matures, rates are higher, I get to lock in new higher rates. So it's a really important concept that goes along with rethinking 60-40, but has a lot to do with that income piece. So yield at cost is, and I'm just, let's start with an example. And again, yield at cost is just your, your investment's annual dividend today divided by what you originally paid for it, whether it's a year ago, three years ago, five years ago. The longer, typically, the better. Lockheed Martin, that's our, it's, that's, this is one of the examples I love. Let's go back 10 years, March of 2012. If you bought Lockheed Martin back then, remember, I'm not saying run out and buy Lockheed Martin. I'm just giving a historical example here. Back 10 years ago, Lockheed Martin was about 90 bucks a share, 89.50 to be exact. Back then, it paid $4 per share. That was the, that was the dividend back in 2012. So if you bought it back then, it was a yield of about 4.5%. If you flash forward to today, stock prices about 400 plus and it's paying out about $11.20 a share. But if you do the math on that, that's only about a two and a half percent yield. The current yield, 11 bucks divided by the current share price. So it doesn't seem like all that much, but wait, what if you had bought it in 2012? What is your yield at original cost? 100,000, let's just round number. We put $100,000 into Lockheed. Your $100,000 investment back then got you about 1,117 shares. 1,117 shares times four bucks got you 4,500 bucks a year. Today, those same shares, 1,117, are paying $11.20. So your current income is about $12,500. So when you look at your original $100,000, now you're getting a 12.5% yield on your original investment. That is powerful. $4,500 to $12,500. Talk about worth the weight. Talk about keeping up with inflation. Uh, And I haven't even mentioned the price return, which is just through the roof. I'm talking about just the income. And that's what we want to focus in, particularly as you're running into retirement. Very difficult to control the price up and down in any given day, week, month, or even year. 
it's a lot easier, in my opinion, to focus in on the amount of cash flow you're getting. And if you find companies that are good about slowly, methodically raising that cash flow, that might be your answer to protecting yourself from inflation. And there's plenty of it today. Hey, y'all, this is Mallory with the Retire Sooner team. Please be sure to rate and subscribe to this podcast and share it with a friend. If you have any questions, you can find us at westmoss.com. That's W-E-S-M-O-S-S.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and YouTube. You'll find us under the handle Retire Sooner Podcast. And now for our show's disclosure. This is provided as a resource for informational purposes and is not to be viewed as investment advice or recommendations. This information is being presented without consideration of the investment objectives, risk tolerance, or financial circumstances of any specific investor and might not be suitable for all investors. The mention of any company is provided to you for informational purposes and as an example only and is not to be considered investment advice or recommendation or an endorsement of any particular company. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. There is no guarantee offered that investment return, yield, or performance will be achieved. The information provided is strictly an opinion and for informational purposes only, and it is not known whether the strategies will be successful. There are many aspects and criteria that must be examined and considered before investing. This information is not intended to and should not form a primary basis for any investment decision that you may make. Always consult your own legal, tax, or investment advisor before making any investment, tax, estate, or financial planning considerations or decisions. Investment decisions should not be made solely based on information contained herein.